according to his promise. We'll go ahead and lower it down to sub Glenn Carnegie levels. There we go. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 6 is our text this morning. We're in the midst of chapters 5, 6, and 7. We've covered all the chapter 5 material. We're going to wrap up chapter 6 and move on into chapter 7. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Distractions are set aside, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, thankful for this opportunity, rejoicing that all things that are done on this day are uh, a part of your grace eternal plan that are working together for the good, working together for the maximum glory of your Son. And we pray that we might be uh, humble and we might be uh, aware of our function and our role as participants in this. Uh, you call us your fellow workers, not because you need us, but because you desire for us to work alongside you in the glorification of, of our Savior. So I pray that we might be oriented properly. I pray that we might have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I'll probably go long today since this is my one and only teaching opportunity. We're giving this evening over to Dan Hawkins, who is already somewhere in central Texas, I, I believe in Fredericksburg this morning, but he will be here uh, this evening and uh, looking forward to that and getting a report on uh, on the Glenhaven Youth Ranch. So let's uh, jump right into our material this morning. We left off with the Lord's Prayer. Is that right? I gave you point nine and subpoints A, B, C, D, and F. But I didn't give you point ten yet, did I? Okay. And that's where we are. <laughs> Thank you. I need to do a better job of putting little marks down where uh, where we leave off from session to session. All right. The uh, Lord's Prayer there as it comes in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Also, it is recorded in Luke as well. There is a Luke parallel to the Matthew text, which comes, it's, it's only 20 verses worth, and it's uh, or 30 verses worth in, in Luke chapter 6. And we haven't spent a lot of time there. Uh, because the material in Matthew is so dominant, three full chapters in Matthew as opposed to 30 verses in Luke. Um, but under point nine in the outline, we looked at the Lord's Prayer. I, I call it the so-called Lord's Prayer because I, I find the John 17 prayer to be much more fitting of the title, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that's a title that's been given to it. It doesn't appear anywhere in the text doesn't appear, uh, you know, in between verse 8 and verse 9, a little blurb there that says, The Lord's Prayer. That was put in there by the publisher of your Bible. That is, an, an English, if you have an English Bible, that is a modern publishing decision. And, um, and it's not unique to that. There are Greek manuscripts that will have little blurbs occasionally, but those are, those are always recognized as being scribal blurbs and are never considered part of the text. So uh, when it says, Pray then in this way, uh, in this instance, I think that the Luke parallel does at least give us some additional uh, clues. And so I'll just pick out a verse here out of Luke chapter 6. And the um, maybe not the uh, the giving of this pattern, the giving of this uh so-called Lord's Prayer comes in response to a question. The disciples are asking him a question. Uh, 
And so they say, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And since I'm not spotting it at the moment, I will cheat. Luke 11, 2 through 4. Ha! So it's not even in the portion of Luke, Luke 6, 20 through 49, where we have the uh, Beatitudes and we have much of the material from Sermon on the Mount that's found in Luke 6. In the Gospel of Luke, as far as this prayer is concerned, it's recorded in chapter 11. Sure enough. And it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Now, that's a remarkable statement right there. Uh, some of the Lord's disciples had been disciples of John prior to uh, leaving him to follow uh, the Christ. Uh, others weren't. But it's interesting is that to this point, Jesus had not actually sat down with them and said, OK, here is how you should pray. Uh, he hadn't had a, a how-to course, uh, Prayer 101, you know, when you start, uh, start with uh, closing your eyes and bowing your head. Then step two, I guess that's step one and two, close your eyes, bow your head. Step three then is uh, address Dear Heavenly Father. Uh, step four then, no, he doesn't really go through that, but it is interesting that, that John did that, that John did go through an actual class instructing his disciples how to pray, which tells us more about John maybe than anything else. Uh, in this context, but they want to learn how to pray, and it's it's remarkable they wait for him to finish, rather than praying with him. They just kind of stand off to the side, and he's there praying, and then they don't want to bother him while he's praying. And then uh, when he's done, then they say, "Well, can you teach us how to do that?" And there's a lot of I think teaching that goes into that. And at some point, I would love to teach a full and complete series on prayer to include the corporate prayer meetings and other such circumstances so anyway he then said to them when you pray say and he goes into material very similar to almost word for word in some respects to the uh, pattern that's given for us back in matthew chapter six so i wanted to highlight that this morning because we didn't uh, mention that last week that this was not just launched into uh uh on the Lord's part, without any kind of prompt, that this had come in response to the disciples asking the question and asking uh, if he would teach them how to pray. All right, then the six different elements of prayer, and we can use this as an outline, so to speak. Does it mean that you're wrong if you get it out of order at some point? No, not at all. In fact, one of the, the clearest things about prayer is that it's not supposed to be mindless repetition. That it has no value in the, the particular words themselves. In other words, it's not like it's a spell or a, an incantation where you have to get the words exactly right. And if you get them wrong, then the spell doesn't work or the prayer doesn't get answered. See, it's nothing like that. The Gentiles may approach prayer like that. The pagans may approach uh, their, their false gods like that, that they have to have the, the particular incantations just right, the right tone of voice, the right uh, body posture, and all the rest. Uh, you can pray standing up, sitting down, kneeling. You can pray flat on your face. There's a, a number of different body positions that are featured in the Old and New Testament for prayer, uh, but none of which is stipulated as a requirement or a formula for uh, prayer success. Nevertheless, as a six-part outline, uh, it, this does help in formulating uh, an order adoration should be the first aspect of it just spending time and unfortunately it's probably the most neglected out of all of them uh, it's just spending time 
praising the Father, worshiping the Father, rejoicing in how perfect He is, celebrating your love for the Father, and all the rest. Of course, this assumes that you actually love the Father. This assumes that you have time to tell Him that you love Him, see, uh, and not just assuming, well, He knows that, I don't have to tell Him that, okay? You know, that's the tragic mistake most husbands make in uh, they don't bother telling their wives from time to time uh, that they love them or how valuable they are to them or what they mean and so forth. It's the same tragic mistake we make with our Heavenly Father, with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we're awfully thankful that we're not going to die and go to hell, but only with teaching do we really develop the intimacy and the love relationship with our Father in, in, in the prayer communication so it says adoration and and that's a good way I, I made all of these a's just so we can um remember them better perhaps uh then anticipation of his coming kingdom thy kingdom come uh anticipation we live in a day of anticipation the church age features anticipation because it features the imminent rapture of the church uh prior to the church the uh, dispensation of israel featured a, a concept of imminence they were waiting imminently for their king to be born, waiting imminently for the uh, kingdom of heaven. It was at hand. They lived under a concept of imminence, and they had been ever since uh, the Old Testament came to a close. Malachi closed, and they had the promise that the forerunner was coming, the Christ was coming, and they were living under that concept of imminence for 400 years. And then the baptizer comes, and he announces, here's the Christ. So we can learn a lot about imminence from the Gospels, because that's what they were living under with the kingdom of heaven at hand. We have our own form of imminence, of course, as we anticipate the rapture. In the tribulation, they will have yet another form of imminence as they must endure to the end to be saved. They, they are anticipating the imminent return of Christ at the uh, completion of, the, of, this, of that 70th week. Ascent to his will. That's another aspect that we tend to overlook or we tend to ignore. Uh, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, typically we say, Father, this is our request. Please adjust your will accordingly. Right? And we may not be so audacious to, to verbalize it that way, but effectively that's what we're saying. You know, we, we might have a little catchphrase where we say, Father, you know, if it could be your will, blah, blah, blah. But what we really mean by that is, Father, this is what we want. Please make it your will. Adjust your will accordingly so that we get what we want. See, um, very seldom do we actually have the maturity to express uh, your will be done because we don't know that will. All right? And that's... That's just a feature of being a finite human being. We are finite creatures. We have finite understanding. We've got desires. We've got passions. We've got a heart. When we pray for Aaron Potts, for example, we want that tumor gone. We want his body healed. We want the, the brain cancer just totally removed from his body. But what if that's not God's will? See, we don't know. We can't know all of the effects that he's accomplishing with that little boy. Just like we can't know uh, with with Rachel Dowd, we can't know all of these you know these children that are born with these things, the things that um, that they're struggling with, for example. All right, the um, assent to His will is so vital. Are we willing to accept the alternative? You know, we say, Father, uh, and Jesus Christ had to. If it's possible, let this cup pass by me. Yet not my will, but Thine be done. You know, we can go ahead and state a preference. But we better be willing to recognize that may not be his will, see. So we want to assent to his will. And then accepting of daily provision. Give us this day our daily. 
and, you know, bread's inserted in there. But uh, give us this day our daily, our, our bread, our provision, our necessity, whatever we require on this day. And uh, it helps to adjust priorities accordingly. Awareness of his forgiveness and abstinence from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, keep us on the path that is going to be glorifying Jesus Christ. And uh, when we put ourselves on that other path, then uh, overrule. Say, overrule. And when you uh, ask for that ahead of time, when you're asking for that while you're in fellowship, it's, it's good preventative medicine for down the road when, when you are carnal that you've already prepared for that day by anticipating it and prepare and asking him to, to overrule, asking him to send a whale or whatever else is needed to, to swallow you whole, spit you on a beach somewhere and, and wake you up to the reality that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And that's, uh, the impact of lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll have more to say about that in our Corinthian series because we're about to be dealing with uh, the Father's faithfulness who will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we are able to bear. So that is coming up. All right. We then wrap up the remainder of chapter 6 with points uh, 10, 11, and 12. Our heart should be focused on heaven where our treasure is stored up. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Keep in mind, we're accustomed to this because we are a heavenly people in the church age. Philippians tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And it's natural for us to to fall into that mode of thinking when we read a passage like this where it says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Let's stop to recognize that this was also a feature for Israel. This was also a feature that they could apply in the Old Testament, and it clearly is going to be a feature that they're going to apply in the tribulation when uh, laying up treasure on earth is not exactly going to be possible. They won't be allowed to buy and sell. They won't be, you know, believers won't be taking the mark of the beast, for example. And even in the millennium, in the millennium, when they're going to have every earthly blessing imaginable, Israel is going to be wealthy beyond anything any earthly kingdom has ever had. You know, you talk about per capita income. Uh, this world hasn't seen it the way the nation of Israel will have it in the millennial kingdom. From their agriculture to their uh, every industry and every pursuit is going to be blessed financially in, in such powerful ways. I think the... Uh, I don't know that we'll have stock exchanges in that circumstance, but if so, the uh, Jerusalem Stock Exchange is going gonna, is gonna to humble New York and Tokyo and anything else that might be out there that thinks they can compete because the, uh, the economic prosperity of Jesus Christ towards the Jewish people is, is absolutely beyond what we can describe. And it is in that environment that he says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Start for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the key. The key in how do I, well, how do I make this deposit? How do I lay up this treasure in heaven? Where is your heart attitude? Where is your passion? Are you, are you so in love with the things of this earth? Or could you take it or leave it? See, is it is it meaningless to you? Is it is it um, you don't even give it another thought? Okay, it's like how uh, how actively do you participate in the Ukrainian economy? I use that example for a reason. I bet there's no one here that has any 
Ukrainian currency in their possession. Bob may prove me wrong. No, okay. I came back from Ukraine last year and I had coins. I had some Ukrainian, wasn't even paper currency. I had maybe one or two paper notes left, but I had a, a pocket full of coins and I made sure that I did that. I made sure that I had sets of four. You know, they're equivalent of what looked like a penny, what looked like a dime, what looked like a nickel, what looked like a quarter. Of course, it, that wasn't what it was. It was whatever their denominations are. I don't have a clue. Okay, but they were they were these these fractions of a single dollar, a single whatever a grievna, all right. And whatever a single grievna is, little, little coins that make up a hundred of those, you know, a hundred of those makes one grievna, and you can get fifty-five grievna for a dollar. So it's like each grievna is two is under two cents, okay. And then each of these coins then is one one hundredth of two cents, okay. So I mean pitiful. As far as value of these coins, of course, the kids loved them. The kids thought they were great. Zoe, especially to this day, keeps talking about it. Last night, she asked, remember that last night, she said that next time I go to Kiev, she wants to come with me so she can spend her Ukrainian money. All right. Well, it illustrates, though, some of this where your heart is. What are you zeroed in on? What are you focused on? What are you dwelling on? What are you saving up for? What are you craving and then what do you just not even give a second thought? Because it's not worth dwelling on. All right. Compared to the treasures we're storing up in heaven, anything that we have laid up here on earth is we're not taking it with us anyway. So where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the key to understanding this process. Do we do you have a heavenly heart? You have a heart for heaven. Now, it's even greater uh, opportunity for us, more so than for Israel, because we actually have a heavenly citizenship, see, which they don't have. They have an earthly citizenship in the, in the uh, kingdom of David. All right. Point 11. Our perspective should be kept clear as we serve the Lord and reject the master of darkness. Matthew 6, 22 through 24. The eye is the lamp of the body. Our perspective should be kept clear. The worst thing imaginable is to blind ourselves. Because the moment that happens, everything else, um, everything else just falls apart. Everything else, you know, it's, it's downhill fast after that. If you, once you cloud that eye, once you stop taking in the Word of God, and once you stop viewing God Himself, okay? It's not, this is even a, uh, this is even something prior to the ear is the eye. See, it says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the local churches. But even before you get to that ear step is this eye step. Do we have our eyes on the Lord? Do we have our eyes fixed on the things above where Christ is? See, because if our eye is misdirected, then, you know, we're not going to hear anything anyway. So it's like the eye step precedes the ear step, if that makes sense. If we can put a sequence to the eye and ear metaphor. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. See, the Lord of darkness, that's the master that would have us to be serving, even though we no longer belong to him. We've been redeemed, we've been purchased, we belong to God the Father because of the, the purchase price of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, we can serve him. And you know that the adversary craves that. He loves that more than all of his unbelieving minions. 
to be able to cause a brother to stumble, to cause a, a, a child of God to stumble, a brother of Jesus Christ. He can't hurt Jesus Christ, but he can hurt his body. He can hurt his brethren. And to the extent that you've done to the least of these, so you've done to him. This is how, Je- this is how Satan attacks Jesus Christ, is through his brethren, through his body, through you and I. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. A lot of stuff to do with mamona, with wealth, with the idea of the cosmic wealth of this fallen world. And that's what it's all about. We want to keep our perspective clear. We want to keep our focus on God. We don't want to darken that eye. And you darken that eye, as it says, if your eye is bad, uh, you darken that eye by looking at anything other than the light, by looking at anything other than, than Jesus Christ, anything other than the, the glory of him in heaven. That's why I love that hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. What a great hymn that communicates the, uh, the, the, the mandate that we're all under. Colossians chapter 3, Since then you've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. That's where we're supposed to be, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Time and time and time again, we're told where our eye is supposed to be focused. Our temporal life, point 12. Our temporal life circumstances and details are in the Father's hands. So we can relax and concentrate on spiritual matters as we walk by faith day by day. Our temporal life circumstances... This is why we're supposed to have mastery of the circumstances and details of life. Our temporal life circumstances and details are in the Father's hands. That's His business. When it says, I must be about my Father's business, let's stop to realize part of His business is taking care of us. And when we get all worked up about it, that's simply a lack of faith that thinks that God's not up to the task. He can't quite handle my personal life, so I better help Him out. I better worry about it myself. I better take matters into my own hands. I better work all this stuff out myself. I better fix it. I better get it right because God can't handle it. That's what we're effectively saying when we choose to worry about finances or worry about earthly details, our job, our house, or whatever it is. There is a sense of priority. There is a sense of proportion. And believers that are worked up about certain things, are indistinguishable from unbelievers. And that's the sad part of it. Why do we act like an unbeliever? There's no reason for that. That's verses 25 through 34. In fact, that concludes the chapter. So you see how this is so practical. Even though it's a kingdom passage, even though it's an admonishment that's going to set the stage for how believers in the millennial kingdom are going to live, Obviously, these are principles for how you and I can live today. Maybe even more so, because the reality is we are a heavenly people. For this reason, for what reason? Well, the reason that you cannot serve two masters. You can either serve God or you can serve mammon. You can serve the Father who provides for you and who has things far better than this world, or you can serve the God of this world and crave the things of this world. But for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. That's your, I think that's your bios life. And I meant to double check that before I started. So let me pull that up. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. You see how spoiled I get? And uh, you can pull open your, uh, your favorite Greek text here. Ah, it's suke. It's the word for soul. 
interestingly enough. And just in case there's a uh, text issue with the Greek manuscripts, I usually open up a uh, Byzantine manuscript just in case I can get the Textus Receptus in there. All right. Do not be worried about your life. And interestingly enough, the word that's used there is your soul, your psuche. In both uh, both Greek New Testaments. Okay. Interestingly enough. Do not be worried about your life, about your soul. Now think about it. When you put the word soul in there, does the rest of the verse kind of get stupid? All right. Think about it now. Do not be worried about your soul, life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink. <laughs> okay. Nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Okay. When you think about your life, when we get wrapped up in what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, when we get wrapped up in circumstances and details, strictly speaking, the soul is the last thing on our mind. We're caught up in the issues of the body. We're caught up in the issues of temporal life, daily life. All right. And by using the word soul in there, it's one of the standard words for life. But it's interesting that by using that word, it reminds us that, oh, yeah, life is more than just the body in it. Life is the soul, body, soul and spirit. May they be pre uh, preserved complete in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. So uh, obviously life is uh, more than food and the body is more than clothing. If that's all we're wrapped up about, goodness, what is that? See. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. See, they're not farmers. They don't, uh, they don't store away things. They don't have, they don't have a diversified portfolio, as it were. They haven't, you know, uh, spread about their, uh, their assets into a variety of different holding locations and, and all the rest. God takes care of them. Your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? That's a rhetorical question with the obvious answer, of course. God didn't send his son in the form of a sparrow to identify with sparrows, to die on the cross for sparrows, to redeem sparrows. You see what I'm saying? He came as a man, the last Adam, to redeem the descendants of the first Adam. Obviously, we're worth much more. And so, obviously, God's going to take care of us. Who... Another rhetorical question, obvious answer, nobody, so quit trying. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Or cubit, all right? You can't add anything, not by worrying. Not by worrying. Some people think this is a contradiction to um, the, the promise that, you know, children obey your parents, honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with the promise that you may live long. Indeed, there is a temporal reward, a lengthening of life that comes as a consequence, as a specific reward for honoring your father and your mother. But that doesn't contradict this, because that's obviously worrying and fretting and trying to uh, get all worked up about your, your existence. It is a far difference from honoring your mother and your father, and, and uh, in which case God adds that to our life. We don't add it to our own life. We can't add even a single hour to our life. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. See, lilies are a neat study. Old Testament, New Testament, 
it's neat how they picture uh, different things, different features of prophecy, different features of, of blessing. You know, you give the girl a name of Lily, and you've given her the English name, and given the name Susanna, and you've given her the, the Hebrew name, and there you go. All right. Uh, yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And that's what it comes down to. When you fail to have the heavenly perspective, when you fail to recognize that your father knows you need these things, he's going to provide for you, you are valuable. That's little faith. You need to increase that faith. Of course he's going to take care of us. Look what he does for these temporary things. They're, I mean, they're disposable for that matter. I mean, grass, it grows, it dies. That's what it does. We're not disposable, we're eternal. We're his son. We, he redeemed us with the price of Jesus Christ. Yes, he's going to take care of us. Do not worry then. Do not worry then. Remember, worry is a sin. Worry is a mental attitude sin. In fact, it underlines a whole lot of other sins. See. So a lot of times you find yourself, in addition to confessing other overt activities and confessing sins of the tongue and so forth, you've got to get that underlining mental attitude sin, that sin of worry. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Now, notice that contrast is with the Gentiles. This is a kingdom passage given to the Jewish people and as the charter of the millennial kingdom. And so the contrast there between Jews and Gentiles is, is what it is in a millennial context, but we can relate it believers to unbelievers as well. We can find that as a contrast and, and appropriately apply it here. So, I mean, this is what an unbeliever does. An unbeliever seeks for these things. Somebody who doesn't have a heavenly father. Somebody who doesn't have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what they do. They get all worked up over these things. Why are we imitating these unbelievers? There's no point in that. It's not why he saved us. Your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first. Now notice, seek first as a priority. Seek first. And once that's in order, then legitimately go about what's necessary to seek the other. All right. Seek first. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All right. Get the priority right. It's stunning. I, I can't tell you how many times people have come to me or called me or emailed or whatever, contacted me in some form and said, hey, uh, pastor, uh, um, we're moving to uh, uh, wherever. We're moving to uh, Pocatello, Idaho. Okay? Got this great job offer. Got a great career opportunity. We're moving to Pocatello, Idaho. Um, you don't know many Bible doctrinal churches in Pocatello, do you? <laughs> well, does it matter? You've already made your decision, haven't you? Find out when you get there. What are you asking me for? Why didn't you research that before you made the decision to go? Okay. But see, what that communicates is that they made uh, the, the temporal life decision first, the geographic decision first, the career decision first. Saying, all right, I'm going to move to Pocatello. That's going to be my geographical will. That's going to be my work assignment. That's going to be where I'm going to be. So then, since I made that a priority, I made that a decision, now I'll make do with the best church I can come up with. I'll settle for that. Or 
you turn it the other way around. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You realize, wait a minute, where is a local church? Where do I get teaching? Where do I get fed? Where can I be under the word of God? Where can I be a part of a family that edifies one another in the use of every spiritual gift? All right. That's where I need to be. That's where I'm going to locate. And then I'll make do. I'll find the best job I can in that location. See. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Temporal life details he will provide. It doesn't say seek first your temporal life activities and then, you know, make do with whatever spiritual life you can scrape up. It doesn't say that. All right. I'm praying right now. In fact, the um, uh, there's a man that's uh, getting out of the Navy and he's praying over where he needs to be in the will of God. And, and he's making the spiritual thing his first priority. And one of those locations he's considering is, in fact, Austin. And we'll see if that's where the Lord brings him. I hope he does. I hope he does. It'd be a, a real blessing to have him to have him here. All right. So do not worry. Now, also, keep in mind, when it says seek first, seek first, that means you get your priorities in line, you've sought his kingdom, his righteousness, you are in the will of God, you are growing in grace and knowledge, then is there anything wrong with seeking second? It doesn't say about seeking second. Seeking second is not the same as worrying. Once your priorities are in line, then you legitimately go out and you pursue daily life. You pursue all these other matters, but not on the basis of worry. Okay, not on the basis of worry, but on the basis of seeking that your spiritual life's in line. Now you seek what he has for you in temporal life because he knows what you need. He's making provision. Now you're seeking to find what he's providing. Okay, that's different than worry where you're seeking to provide, seeking to find what you can provide. You see the difference? So do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think the summary statement there in verse 34 spells it out. It is a daily walk, seeking first the kingdom of God. It is a daily walk. All right, that gets us into chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount continues with a message that we are not called upon to sit in judgment over one another. The Sermon on the Mount continues... With a message that we are not called upon to sit in judgment over one another. Passage that uh, that gets mistaught, gets perverted. You always know it's it's ripe for for twisting. You know it's ripe for twisting when you catch unbelievers using it, right? How many times has an unbeliever you know look both at, don't judge me, you can't judge me. Don't judge others lest you too be judged, right? And they throw that out there as a license to live their whatever, their homosexual lifestyle or their drugs or whatever it is they're doing. They're shacking up with a girlfriend, whatever it is they're doing. And then they say, you can't judge me, right? Don't judge lest you be judged. When an unbeliever starts citing a verse, that's not the only one they do either. They got a handful that they love throwing at people, Okay. It means they've, they've grabbed onto a verse that they think they know what it means and they think they can use it to beat you up with. And that right there is a clue that you've got to be careful with the text. It's, it's ripe for misapplication. And I think even by believers, uh, they misapply this. There's a difference between um, in love admonishing a brother and sitting in judgment over him. Okay? And I think sometimes believers are reluctant 
to come and tell their brother in Christ that they're messing up. Right? They're reluctant to come alongside because they think that somehow that violates Matthew 7.1. It doesn't at all. As long as you're, as long as you're spec free, speak up. Okay? Because you're not sitting in judgment. And you're willing to be under the same scrutiny. That's what it's about because it says in the way you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So, so putting yourself in the mental attitude of love, in the mental attitude of grace, you can address your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ. In fact, you're commanded to. You should go to him privately. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. All right? But it's not that you're seated in judgment. It's not that you are on this uh, judicial bench as a sinless one passing judgment on this other person as this undeserving lackey that somehow has to measure up to your standards. That's not what this is all about. All right. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Seated as the sovereign judge. That's none of us. To his own master he stands or falls. Um, Four. In the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, we measure to you. This is where the compound discipline returns upon you. If you come down condemning on another brother wrongly, in carnality, with slander, with uh, the judgmental heart of pride that, that uh, is, is seeking to tear them down, it's coming back. Okay? That same standard of, of tearing down, God will discipline that. Okay? And if it's a, this is where uh, Pastor Theme taught the double compound discipline when indeed you're, you're doing that against a pastor teacher, you're doing that against an elder. Say, that's why 1 Timothy says don't receive an accusation against an elder without the clear corroborating two or three witnesses and be very careful. David wouldn't lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, even when Saul needed to be whooped. David said, nope, Lord's going to take care of that. I'm not going to do that. All right, for the way you judge, you will be judged. So keep that in mind. And make sure that when you are um, admonishing, rebuking, correcting, make sure that you're not sitting in judgment as a uh, a goody-two-shoes know-it-all. Okay? You're going to approach them in grace, you're going to approach them in mercy, and you're going to approach them in fear that it could happen to you as well. That's the impact of Galatians 6.1 when it says, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. But notice what else it says in that verse. Looking to yourself as well, lest you be tempted. Okay. By your standard of measure will be measured to you. So make sure that you're dealing with them in grace and love because that's how you want to be judged as well. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Putting things in a matter of perspective. Now, that's not to say, this is not to compare things. Okay? Not to compare what he's doing with what you're doing. We, we, get, we get caught up in the comparison of things. The, 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 the contrast here is not a comparison of things, it is a contrast of, of importance. And you've got, to take, you've got to adjust your own walk with the Lord first. And it's not saying that the thing he's doing is small and the thing you're doing is huge. Okay? Saying that, you know, his problem is he's, uh, he's uh, serial 
murderer. Uh, he's got all these sins and all these things. And, uh, and, and so the things he's doing is that, uh, but the things I'm doing are just tiny. You know, I'm just maybe a little, you know, a little white lie here or there, maybe a little bit of pride, not much. Uh, you know, that's not what it's saying. It's not to compare the things I'm doing with the things they're doing. It's to say that we're all doing things. You know, he who's without sin, go ahead, pick up some stones and start throwing them. We all do things. The reality is, is not that his are better than mine or mine are better than his or, or somehow. The importance is that I've got to be in fellowship. I've got to confess my sins. Because whatever they are, it's like a beam. It is that much more important than fixing this other guy. Right? And yet some believers get that in their mind that, that God has called them. They're on a, it's like the Blues Brothers, right? I'm a, we're on a mission from God. And if you laughed, I know you've seen that movie, okay? But some people think that they're on this mission, that, that we've been called to fix everybody else. We're going to straighten you out. We're going to get you walking right. We're going we're gonna, to, you know, no, we're not called to do any of that. What's far more important is that you get that beam out of your own eye because that's, that goes back to chapter 6. You've got to keep the eye clear. You've got to keep your eye focused on where it needs to be. So your own personal spirituality versus carnality is the priority far more than addressing a, uh, a brother. See, when it comes right down to it, that's why it is he who is spiritual. Because if you're carnal, you can't correct the uh, brother that's caught in a trespass. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, you do get involved, but once your own eye is clear. Okay, you do get involved. And so that destroys the skeptic or the unbeliever that's trying to throw verse one out at you and say, you can't even get involved. Don't even talk to me. Right. Verse five says you do, but you only do that after you've dealt with yourself. Verses 1 through 5. ton of teaching all this. And if someday I'd love to teach a Sermon on the Mount series and spend about, oh, 30 or 40 lessons on the Sermon on the Mount and take more detail with each of these verses. Point 14. Neither are we to sit in judgment over unbelievers. Neither are we to sit in judgment over unbelievers as if somehow they're accountable to us. Matthew 7, 6. They don't need the holy pearls of God's word. They need the simple gospel message. That's why it says, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It's, it's, I'm going to get in trouble this morning, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> let me finish writing that down. Neither are we to sit in judgment over unbelievers, Matthew 7, 6. They don't need the holy pearls of God's word. They need the simple gospel message. Until they are redeemed and transformed, they will hate the holy pearls of God's word. Absolutely hate it. Men hate the light. They love the darkness. Their deeds are evil. What do you expect? 
The sad thing, though, is that we've got these crusaders, Christian crusaders who mistake what it means to be salt and light as, as a testimony, as an influence to be observed and to be, uh, to be the flavoring and the savor. They think that rather than salt and light, we need to be, uh, we need to be marching and crusading and conquering and transforming and changing and, and making this world a better place beyond simply our presence uh, as a blessing by association. Um, and, and, and where this gets misdirected is, is in a lot of cases this idea that um, we're going to, <laughs> we're going to uh, morally reform people. We're going to morally reform unbelievers. You can't do that. See, um, you know, it's like putting a dress on a pig or something. You know, what are you really doing? It's still a pig. Doesn't matter how you dress it up, how you decorate it. And and so much of the debate, whether it's uh, abortion or whether it's it's, uh, I mean, anything. Homosexuality, all these other things, these social issues that, yes, there are, there is right, there is wrong, there is what pleases God, there is what God hates. Yes, all of that. But to try to take uh, a Moloch worshiper, you know what I mean by that? You know who Moloch was? Or Chemosh? These, these, these gods of the Near East that, that uh, sacrificed their children? Child sacrifice, the modern form of that is, is the, the abortion mill today. All right? Instead of trying to morally reform a, a Moloch worshiper, don't you think they need the gospel? Shouldn't the first impact be presenting Christ to a lost and dying world? Then after that, you start teaching the Word of God. They start growing in grace and knowledge. They start, they become transformed into the image of His Son. They start, they're being molded according to the Word of God, the renewing of their mind. But to try to, to try to do a moral reform of, of, a, of a Moloch worship or a moral reform of, of, uh, of all the rest of that, how do we do that? Okay. And, and I think a lot of the efforts, the crusader arrogance efforts that are out there are misdirected. They don't need the holy pearls of God's word. They need the simple gospel message. And if you're trying to proclaim a lifestyle, I mean, let's face it, the Christian way of life is not attractive to the, uh, to the, the carnal mind, the unbeliever. What are they going to find attractive about the Christian way of life? Until they are redeemed and transformed, they will hate the holy pearls of God's word. All right, then we have principles on prayer to point 15. Our prayer life is guaranteed. See, we had prayer already. That is the infant prayers of uh, pray then in this way. In the back in chapter 6. Now we have more prayer information in chapter 7. Our prayer life is guaranteed by a loving Heavenly Father who delights in providing for us. That's verses 7 and 11. Ask and will be given to you. Seek and... You will find, knock, and it will be open to you. See, the, um, the principle of this is vital. And keep it in mind again, for as our teaching on Sunday morning gets back to that area on spiritual gifts, 
You say, well, how do I know my spiritual gift? Ask. Seek. Knock. All right? Make sure you're asking in the will of God. Our prayer life is guaranteed by our loving Heavenly Father who delights in providing for us. Notice, it does not say, follow the formula that I taught you in chapter 6. It says, ask. And uh, much of uh, the the prayer pattern in chapter 6 was not even focused on asking other than uh, for His will to be done, His kingdom to come. Give us this day our daily bread. We got all these other things we're asking for. <laughs> Wants instead of needs. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone. Who's left out there? Now, this is a kingdom passage. This is the charter for the millennial kingdom. This is going to be a circumstance. Israel is going to have prayer privileges unlike anything any earthly nation has ever seen. Everything is there for the asking. Can we draw application from this? Of course. Because we can draw in principles from James. We can draw in principles from First Thessalonians. We can bring in the principles of prayer that we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that do apply to church-age believers. And we can relate this passage here very well. We don't have any problem with adopting these as principles, but we have to remember, like everything else I've said in chapter 5, 6, and 7, this is not our text. This is the kingdom of heaven at hand text for the millennial kingdom. But what is our application, though? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is it? And that's just a promise. All right? Now, there are... Other passages to consider that these aren't the only verses we have on prayer in the entire Bible. James is important to correlate with this because if you ask with the wrong motivations, are we going to get it? See, it says you have not because you ask not. And then it says you have not because when you ask, you ask with the wrong motivations that you may spend it on your lusts. See, so if you were begging and begging and begging and pleading on your knees, hours and hours and hours last whatever it was, Saturday, when was that? And uh, praying for that $365 million Powerball thing that was taking place. All right. Well, your prayers weren't answered. Why? <laughs> you should have been in that pool in Nebraska or whatever it was where they collected their... their uh, that's going to be a company in trouble, though. If they had all their employees gathered together, right? Can you imagine? They're going to be looking for some more employees here coming up. <laughs> I'd expect. There are other passages. This, this isn't the only passage on prayer. Likewise, we're told, whatever you ask, believing you shall receive. For if you're not believing, don't think that you're going to get it. If you, if you can't pray in faith, if you're doubting in your prayers, that's an insult. That's telling the Father, um, I'd kind of like to have this, but you don't really love me, or you can't really handle it, or you don't have enough to give to me, or you can't take care of this. That's a faithless prayer, an unbelieving prayer. And we're told, don't pray that way. Believe, expecting that our sovereign, omnipotent, heavenly Father can provide. He wants to provide. He's going to provide. And if we're asking for the wrong thing because we're finite in understanding, that's okay. He'll take care of that too. 
He'll answer no to the request, but yes to the motivation. He'll say, no, you don't want that. Here's what you really need. Because he knows better than we do. All right? And that's the principle of prayer. It's got to be according to his will. It's got to be in faith. Or what man is there among you who, when the son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Okay? That is mildly rhetorical. It's expected that no one would do that. Although conceivably there are abusive fathers out there and there are, you know, horrible fathers who might do something that awful. But uh, strictly speaking, talking to the disciples here, uh, speaking to Israel in the regenerate state of the of the millennium, um, none of them are going to do anything like that. That's not how fathers work. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Once again, we have the contrast of extreme in this passage. It's an idiom. The disciples aren't evil. But he uses that contrast of evil and good to show the, the east, as far as the east is from the west, extreme difference between human beings and God. Okay? It's an idiom, and it's used repeatedly throughout the Gospels, particularly here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's used elsewhere when uh, we are told to hate our father and mother, and, or if we don't hate them, and then we don't love Jesus. Okay? That's the language of extreme, and it's used as a literary device. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's a language of extreme to communicate. Are the disciples evil? Of course not. Are you evil? No. Positionally, you're righteous. But the contrast between you and the Heavenly Father is so infinite, it's like the diametrically opposed contrast between good and evil. And so that's how this is communicated here in verse 11. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? If you're asking for something in his will, if you're asking for something so that you are equipped to glorify his son in your work assignment, how can he say no? Because he has spent eternity from eternity to eternity, the Alpha to Omega floor plan, he has done all that to glorify his son. He's not going to say no to a prayer request that glorifies his son. How much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask, and keep in mind, what is good? Not a lot that you think you want, but the Father knows better. He says, no, that's not good. In fact, that would be very bad. Yeah, in fact, you know, if you were to have $365 million tomorrow, that would be very bad. Say, I don't know what's so bad about it. I just buy a baseball team and stadium. and I'm sure I'd still pastor. Right? All right. He knows what's good. Because every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift, every good thing bestowed comes where? From above, from the Father of lights. No variation, no shifting shadow. It says, uh, you know, the young lions suffer hunger and want. But we don't. The one who trusts in the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So we have confidence. We have the guarantee of answered prayer. Point 16. The Sermon on the Mount also featured many other well-known teachings of Christ. We discussed this last week or two weeks ago. Uh, you know, was this all one 
long sermon. In other words, he got up, he started speaking with, um, you know, blessed ours. You know, he started speaking back in chapter one with blessed are the poor in spirit. Did he stand up and start speaking and then go nonstop all the way to the end of chapter seven? All the way down to uh, great was its fall in 727. And when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed. Or were these a series of messages over several hours, several nights? Was this a Bible conference where they got together each night of the week and these were a, a long series of messages then? And undoubtedly there was more that was given verbally that didn't make it into the printed version of it here, the, the, the written record. I think that's likely the case. And these other topics here, including the golden rule. Man, I'm out of time. Where does this go? I really thought we could wrap this up today. The narrow and broad gates, the wolves and sheep's clothing. You shall know them by their fruit. So many of these things. Things that, by the way, we, we use constantly. We use all the time in the church age, even though this isn't our text. All right. The principles are still valid. The concepts are still the same. That which pleases God in the millennium pleases him today. That which angers him then will, will still anger him today. The concepts are still there. We can still make application. I guess we'll come back one week from today. Lord willing, rapture pending. We'll look at all four of these. We'll then look at what the two warnings are about. This Lord, Lord warning. A whole crowd of people, the most religious people you've ever seen, who've done more for Jesus than you and I will ever dream of. At least in their own minds. They've done it all. They've done everything. A lot of them are even in uh, charismatic endeavors prophesying and casting out demons and performing miracles. They're not even saved. And declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They're not even saved. And they're involved in these ministries. All right. Well, we're out of time. We'll pick this up next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Pray that we might dwell upon these principles that we've learned. Pray that we might recognize their application for our stewardship, recognize the principles for our personal application that we might glorify our Savior. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.